Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. Plus, coming up later, myself and Tim Burrows speak with Trimantium Growth Ops founder, Philip Kingston, about what the business actually does. That's, I mean, that's the core purpose of Growth Ops, is to be the growth partner for the incumbent, to give them the best chances against the new entrant. The health of Growth Ops' current share price. Would I prefer the share price to be higher rather than lower? Of course. Is it in my top 10 priority areas? No, it's not. And the recent board shakeup. What actually happened is they were tired. We brought in a much larger board with incredible financial acumen. But first, the week's topics. OMD named Mumbrella's media agency of the decade. Henry Tager is out at Densuegis. And seven axes yet more programs. First up, this week saw Omnicom Media Group's OMD take the title of Mumbrella's Media Agency of the Decade. Now, firstly, I can't quite believe that we're at the stage where anyone can be awarded anything for the end of the decade and that it's going to be 2020 in a matter of weeks. But for anyone who's not familiar with how this came about, obviously, you know, the end of the decade had a huge part to play. And we wanted to sort of finish off by recognising a couple of agencies and brands that have had a transformative decade. And when we consulted the industry about which media agency in particular had had a solid, impressive decade, OMD was the consistent response, but also the response was that OMD had been consistent. And I think that's why they took out the award in the end because others perhaps were seen as having a more volatile decade or not finishing on as much of a high even if earlier in the decade they'd had a fantastic run. Uh, Brittany, you ended up speaking to Omnicom Media Group CEO Peter Horgan and OMD's current CEO Amy Buchanan and they tended to agree, didn't they, that they've now reached the point of being consistent whereas before I can't remember the word that Peter used to describe what they were before dangerously comfortable I think it was yeah so comfortable is the word that Peter and Amy used to describe 2010 and the start of the decade they were in a place where they were good and they'd been doing good work Uh, Amy came in in 2011 and at that point she said that she knew that they had a great culture knew that they had a really great people experience but they'd kind of let their focus on the product slip. And the way she described it was that it was soft. So it kind of all came to a head when Mark Buckman, who was Telstra's CMO at the time, Telstra being OMD's biggest client, a client that in 2006 when they won the account had really converted them from kind of a mid-sized, decent agency to a big, well-respected agency. And he came in and wasn't happy, basically. You know, they... They were doing average work, according to him. The relationship had kind of become complacent and petered out. And so he invited Peter and Lee Terry, who was then in Peter's current role, which is CEO of Omnicom, to a hotel in Sydney for an after work drink. 
and and laid it on them and just said, you know, this isn't good enough. You're toast unless you get your act together. Yeah, well, um, Mark has said that he said to Lee and Peter, you know, you're believing you're in hype. You think mm. you're a nine out of ten, but actually you're a two out of ten. <laughs> that is Which, harsh feedback. Can you imagine hearing that? Like not only are you being sort of insulted that you're only a two out of ten, you're also being called arrogant at the same time for mm. you think you're a nine out of ten, like you don't even realise how shit you are. Mm. Uh, but Mark said to Peter's credit, he then realised that the shit was about to hit the fan and started to turn it around and really demonstrate to Mark why they should retain the Telstra business. I mean, they had no choice. Peter said that it was life or death at that point. If they lost that client, they were in a really bad spot. So they absolutely needed to get their act together. And over the next few months, he had a bunch of meetings with Mark, had to prove what they were doing, why it was different, who they'd hired, how they'd restructured, what they were going to do to get that work to the point that it needed to be at. And yeah, I think Mark at the end says that it was kind of like a phoenix rising from the ashes, which is uh, poetic, a, quite poetic <laughs> and quite a compliment compared to starting the decade with a two out of 10. So yeah, I think it, it's interesting me kind of coming in and digging back to that point as well, because that's obviously well, well beyond my tenure here and in the industry. Because everyone I've spoken to this year, you go out, you meet agency CEOs, you meet managing directors, strategy directors, you know, high up people. And when you ask them who in the market is doing good work, who do you worry about when you see them on a pitch list, OMD comes up time and time again. And it's always because the word consistent is used every single time. And so it's fascinating that somehow they've they've dragged themselves up from that point of, okay, if we don't figure this out, we're done, to now being a really respected agency. Not that they weren't respected then, but a respected agency and known to be really consistent. And when I chatted to Kim Portrait from Think TV, I didn't tell her that consistency was the word that Peter and Amy had used. I didn't tell her that it was a word that I'd already heard a lot. I said, what do you think of OMD? And immediately she said the word consistency. So, yeah, it's it's a nice story and a nice story to end the year and the decade on for sure. And they've done a lot of work to transform their sort of engagement with people who work there who are parents. So they had an incredibly small proportion of primary carers returning to work and it was probably about the industry standard. It was just very low and they've now got some ridiculously high number of people who are coming back to work. And, you know, even Amy herself has a seven-week-old. She's not yet back at work, but she did come down to Tasmania for our uh, retreat with some of the top marketers in the country where they accepted the award. And she obviously – I can't sort of go into too much detail about what she said because the whole retreat was operating under Chatham House rule. But – she was incredibly emotional and proud of the work that they've done to transform that. And now they have so many people not only coming back to OMD because they know that the support is there for primary carers, but others in the industry who feel like they want to have a family or they want to balance children and work coming to work there because they know that they'll be able to return and, you know, still have that family without having to leave the industry at the age of 35 or something. Yeah, she told me that there's three that she could think of fairly recently who have either been hired pregnant or with a newborn, which is 
you know, it should be the standard, but it's not. And so for businesses that are, you know, approaching this with the idea that we want good people, we want, you know, top talent. And if that means that talent is pregnant now, or if that talent has a kid, who cares? Um, so yeah, 89% of people returning to work after having a child, which is a, an enormously high statistic, particularly in the industry. And I'd say for any industry, probably they revamped the whole parental leave policy in 2017, doubled the parental leave. But an important part of that, I think, and Amy recognized it as well, is that it's not just having policies. Policies work to a point, but if you're a junior, even if you're a senior and you're not seeing those above you and those at the very top actually using those policies and actually saying to everyone else, it's okay, they're here to be used, we want you to use them, then you know th- their success and th- their impact is quite limited. So it's all of those other informal things that happen. It's it's culture building. It's you know Amy taking leave and bringing you know her baby in, and you know other people being encouraged to bring their kids into the office. Uh, you and I were both there, Viv, when we did the media agency live judging this year. And at the very end, we were told that there was some special guests waiting out in the lobby and we thought, oh, okay, it's another senior person or whoever. And oh, we were like just 30 kids. Yeah. <laughs> by children. So we'd done an office tour and we came out and honestly, I've never been swarmed like that by anything, let alone lots of tiny, beautiful children. Oh, we're holding little OMD bags yeah. to hand us. It was really like it was hard not to get. Uh, I mean, I did say to Peter Horgan at the time that it felt like quite a cynical move, like win us over with hormones at the end with these tiny children because everybody <laughs> left on such a high. Yeah. I don't know if everyone at OMD just has particularly cute children or if they picked out the really good-looking <laughs> ones. Yeah, it was it. There were a whole bunch of ugly children <laughs> in the back. They were like, stay away. But it was, you know, I'm not even particularly, you know, maternal or inhabited with children. I'm not one of those people who – wants to hold babies or anything like that. I'm far from a baby whisperer. But even I left being like, oh, definitely the winners. And then I was like, it's just because of the damn tiny children. And all the judges were just like, that was so clever because – you can you can talk about it all day long, but really it's what happens when we're not there. It's what happens when, you know, even the bosses aren't there. What happens day to day? And the fact that that many people had their kids in on that day. I'm sure that a lot were encouraged to bring their kids mm. because they knew we'd be there. But, you know, they they embed that in the business day to day, which I think is really impressive. Wasn't always smooth sailing for their live judging, though. Uh, in 2017, uh, they had the Umbrella judging panel, so a sort of panel of industry experts coming to visit OMD and do the office tour and they all got trapped in a lift for 50 minutes and the fire brigade had to come and it would just be my worst nightmare. Like I've seen a photo of that and it's so cramped and you're on such a tight schedule that day as well. So it would have been a logistical nightmare. It would have been stressful and 50 minutes in a lift is a long time. That is an insanely long time <laughs> in a small lift. Yeah, I'd already heard about it because, again, when we went live judging this year, Kim Portrait, who was there and stuck in the lift, very loudly proclaimed to the poor young OMD staffer who was tasked with the tour this time around, who I don't think was there during the 2017 incident, 
he he went and pressed the lift button and she said, we will absolutely not be taking the <laughs> lift. We will be taking the stairs. The last time we were here, we were trapped in a lift. Um, and so it was stairs only for us at OMD that day. But yeah, I mean, Amy, Amy brought it up and said that it was probably the funniest, craziest story of her entire career, let alone at OMD. And just... You can only imagine that horrible feeling of, oh, my God, we've still got to present. And she said that they had rehearsed so much and they were so ready for it. And then she just thought, oh, no, they're all going to hate us. And then they're going to have to sit and listen as we try and talk about how good we are. (laughs) What a smooth operation they're running. (laughs) Next up, Henry Tasia is out at Dan. So I guess in less positive news for the media agency landscape this week, it was announced that Dentsu Aegis Network's local CEO, Henry Tasia, would be leaving after less than a year in the role to be replaced immediately by Angela Tangus. Tasia only stepped into the role at the beginning of this year. Also leaving at the same time was Chief Financial Officer Reg Davidson, who has been replaced by Jerome Whelan. APAC CEO Ashish Basin said it was the right decision for the network and the market. Now, obviously, Brittany opinion has been really split on what's gone down here, and I don't think the full story has emerged, and maybe it won't ever emerge. So we will be careful here how we speculate, because I've obviously heard wild theories making wild accusations about anyone and everyone involved, as tends to be the case when you have a very prominent CEO, uh, a network undergoing a transformation, a short tenure, a strangely worded press release. You know, it's quite odd to, obviously you have to announce a leadership change, but it's an odd press release to send out. And, you know, even the quote saying that it was, the right decision for the network is seen as a bit of a swipe at those departing and when someone's leaving, they don't get to be quoted in the press release. So it is a really funny dynamic. But goodness me, it certainly feels like that's given the task that Henry was given, which was to completely reinvigorate and completely transform the network. It doesn't feel like he was given a lot of time to do that. Uh, It's a very, very short tenure to be there for and now it does feel like Angela certainly has a huge challenge in front of her because somebody else has started rebuilding in their vision and brought in a number of key people like Sue Squalachi to head up Cara and you know there's been the merger of with Collective and Isobar things have happened and whether or not they were Henry's idea they were done under Henry's leadership and now she's got to take over this network that's in a really odd position and at a really strange time. Yeah, we were super shocked when the news came through. Hannah kind of stood up at her desk and was like, have you seen the email? And I was like, no. Uh, and you're totally right. It's it's weird as well because I think Henry had been quite open about the fact that this year was a super unpredictable and volatile one for them. And as a leader, you have to also you know, tell your network and tell your agencies that this is the vision and stable the ship and not allow people to get wrapped up in the uncertainty and the fear, which I'm sure there was some of when, you know, 
people have gone, people are coming in, agencies are being merged, they've lost accounts, you know, it's been it's been a, a strange time for them. So it does feel like a very short amount of time to assess the results of that, especially in a year like this one where you've then got economic conditions and market conditions which are making it tougher even for good agencies, let alone agencies that are recognising that we've got a lot of work to do to be where we need to be. Yeah, I think from what I've heard this week and the people that I've chatted to both inside Dan and outside of Dan, it wasn't expected internally. And so my hope is that both Angela and, you know, the regional leadership, the holding company broadly can get back some sense of stability because it must just be a strange and unnerving time to be a staff member there and to just be trying to figure out, one, what the hell's going on, but two, what are we doing? How am I going to do my job best? How am I going to communicate with a new leader what the vision for my agency and my people are? So I think it'll be really interesting to see where they are in, say, six months, how much has changed, how much has stayed the same, whether or not they're going to continue doing the stuff that Henry started to do or whether or not there's a totally different plan that was, you know, completely separate from what we've seen this year. Yeah, well, the news for me came through when I was uh, on a bus in regional northwest Tasmania and I happened to have reception at that moment in time and I jumped onto Slack, which is our sort of the tool that we use for internal communications. And I think I said something like, holy shit sticks, and then immediately <laughs> Hannah told me to shh because they were busy. <laughs> we were sending a breaking news alert, Vivian. Um, so it was it was very funny and it was perhaps uh, even more amusing to be on the bus with some of the country's leading marketers when the breaking news alert came through because obviously I didn't say anything to anyone on the bus until you guys back here had handled it and gotten it out. And suddenly uh, this phone came through the seats uh, behind me and I won't say who because, again, um, you know, we were sort of quite off the record down in Tasmania, but the person Off the was, record and off the grid. Yes. <laughs> the person holding the phone just said, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. And suddenly- that was everyone's reaction. Suddenly, uh, every, you know, suddenly she was telling everyone to get on Umbrella and have a look and- yeah, people were definitely shocked and were definitely talking about it uh, over the past few days in Tasmania and, and what's gone down and what's next for Henry and obviously also pointing out how much we've had to moderate the comments on that thread. So people are obviously incredibly interested and incredibly intrigued because Henry, you know, love him or hate him, agree with his strategy or don't agree with his strategy – he was making a lot of noise, you know. He was getting a lot of attention for the network. He was not, you know, doing anything lying down. He was definitely trying to execute something. And the other sort of point that people raised perhaps um, was that maybe Australia is not a huge priority for Dan anymore. Some people in Tasmania felt that that was the message of the press release rather than mm. it being necessarily just a Henry problem or a Henry and Dan clashing or disagreeing over the vision. Some people said that if you read between the lines of that press release, maybe Dan APAC doesn't want to focus on Australia as much anymore. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, it's it's hard to figure out what it is and then how much of each different thing it is. I, I'd say, though, that 
you know, Henry will be okay. Um, I think he's he's got his detractors. He's got people who, I mean, when he came in, everyone I spoke to were like, if anyone can do this job, it's Henry. And that wasn't one or two people. That was people across the board. Even people who yeah. traditionally haven't <clears throat> liked him or mm. haven't been a fan of his work or his history have said, yeah, but that was such a tough gig and Henry was the one to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel I feel really sorry for him. I feel sorry that, you know, he is in this position. He, when we first met, he was someone who struck me as someone who wanted to know who I was and what my intentions were, which was a little bit unnerving. But he said, where did you go to school? What do your parents do? Where did you grow up? And then I asked him those same things back. He was telling me heaps about his kids. And so I think among the comment thread drama and the industry drama and, you know, what is it and why did it happen, ultimately you kind of just have a bit of a shitty feeling that, you know, here's here's someone who's had to go home and tell his kids that he doesn't have a job heading into Christmas it's not the nicest of things and I just hope that regardless of what people think about him and what he did there, that, you know, whether or not he wants to come back to a role in the industry or not, you know, that it'll be waiting for him and that people will sort of take that at face value if and when it comes. Yeah, well, look, I mean, people in the industry are definitely intrigued by Henry, the sheer volume of comments and chatter about him and, and what's happened would be testament to that. So I'm sure it's not the last that we'll hear from Henry or indeed from Dan. Up next, The Axe Falls on more shows at seven. So Hannah, I might just throw straight to you on this one because the announcement about what Seven has done next again came through when I was in Tasmania so I'm not fully sure what's gone down other than I think despite today tonight exiting from Sydney some time ago does it now not exist at all? Correct it no longer exists at all so um, yeah today tonight on the east coast had been cancelled five years ago so it was still only running in Adelaide and Perth and the way that looks is seven news occupies an hour slot and in Adelaide and Perth the second half of that hour would run as today tonight so they had their own independent or their own uh, local reporters they ran local stories and then, yeah, earlier this week, uh, the news came through that the whole thing would be coming to an end. That's the end after 25 years, which is a pretty decent run. Um, but it wasn't even the only thing that Seven dropped this week. Uh, they also announced earlier that more programs would be cancelled, including Sydney Weekender, which has also been running for 25 years. This was a whole group of brand-produced travel shows. That's Sydney Weekender, South Australia Weekender, uh, The Great Day Out, Creek to Coast. Some of these have been running for like 10 to 15 years. So does this mean uh, we won't be seeing Who Dares Wins Mike Whitney on our screens anymore? <laughs> I <laughs> Correct. And no story I've written has gotten as much traction with my friends as this story. I have had more what's happening to who dares wins texts <laughs> in the last hour or so than I've had in my entire life. But 
Um, yeah, so it's interesting. I think all obviously the official line from Seven on this is they have commissioned a whole bunch of new stuff for 2020. Big Brother obviously coming back. Fun wants a wife coming back. Sonia Kruger's coming back. So I think the official line is, you know, we're revamping the, the slate. But, I mean – those shows aren't going to go in the slot that Sydney Weekender had. You know, Big Brother is replacing other primetime options that haven't worked as well on Seven. You know, Seven has had a bit of a failure to launch with some of its programs this year. James Warburton, their CEO, is the first and loudest to admit that. So presumably I don't know that one is connected to the other. Like I know that's the official line from Seven and they are revamping their programs and they are going after a slightly younger audience and – James wants to be more innovative and risk-taking with his programs uh, and definitely harking back to that nostalgia of Big Brother and Farmer What's a Wife and whatever. But Sydney Weekender, I mean, what's what's going to run in that slot? Not not Big Brother, not Farmer What's a Wife, not Pooch Perfect. No, and I completely agree. I think it's probably a lot easier for them to say, look how much content we've commissioned to ignore the stuff that we're cancelling them for them to say up until now our slate hadn't been getting a lot of love when he came into the ceo position james said that it was an oh, what did he say aging war horses in the slate i think um so i think basically what he's trying to do is get rid of anything that's not providing value he's he's really doing a marie condo on the slate i think anything <laughs> Does that it doesn't spark sp- joy yeah if it doesn't spark joy james is getting it out oh, of there surely mike whitney sparks mark joy <laughs> if my friends are anything to go by mike whitney sparks a lot of joy um but yes i we don't know as of yet what is going to run yeah. in these slots I obviously mean, today tonight is just going to be seven news but sydney weekender was on at sunday at five thirty p.m which i just don't think is a huge viewing time for free-to-air television viewers. You know, they can get big audiences still for their tentpole programs at 7.30 p.m. on a Sunday, but I think 5.30 p.m. on a Sunday, you're not going to want to put anything in there that you have to spend too much money on or invest too much in because people just aren't in front of the television at that time and it's not even really – even if you put something there that would lend itself to catch-up or binge viewing – I don't know that you'd go down that path either because, again, you're not going to have that balance where it's also drawing viewers in on the linear broadcast. Mm, But I think if you're going to, you know, if you're going to think about those slots which, yes, aren't going to draw that much attention, if you are somebody like James Warburton who is trying to completely change the demographic of the network, Sydney Weekender, I would say, I'm going to go out on a limb here and presume that it has a fairly aging demographic, which is very much not where he's aiming. So I guess this is just part of another rebranding exercise for Seven more than anything else. And also on Seven, we had Sunday Night, which was their sort of competitor to Nine's 60 Minutes, their current affairs program helmed by Melissa Doyle, have their sort of final retrospective and celebratory episode, which had 379 thousand overnight metro viewers so not a huge number there it's definitely pulled larger numbers throughout its you know decade plus run but again there's uh definitely questions about what what exactly next year's slate is going to look like we know the programs that will be in there but in terms of how that lines up and how it fills the void of those ones that have been pulled it will be interesting to see how it unfolds but 
Also in television this week, uh, the ARIA Awards went to air on nine, I believe on Wednesday evening, and they had only 417,000 Metro viewers. Now, Hannah, I can see you've written on my script here, all in caps and bold and italics, does anyone care? I guess we we do care in that we're, we're talking <laughs> about it, so I think you've sort of answered your own question there, but... Uh, it's interesting, I think, with these award ceremonies and going to air on television, the ARIA Awards are definitely still important for the industry that they represent. And I think how many consumers are tuning in to watch those awards aren't necessarily reflective of their importance for the music and record labels and all and the artists and, and stuff that get together to celebrate those. But I think... It's just a challenge for those TV networks and those award ceremonies about their identity and what they want to be and who they want to be for. Because if they're for the industry, you know, that's absolutely fine. The Mumbrella Awards doesn't go to air. There's a million awards programs that don't go to air and are just for their industries and they matter and people care and they're important and they can, you know, lead to more business opportunities and marketing activity and, and all of that. But it feels a bit like consumers don't care as much anymore in terms of their engagement with it. So that's kind of more what I was referring to with my very large, <laughs> does anyone care? What I think, and this is just my personal view on this, I think what we've seen from both the Arias and if we look at other things, the Logies as well, I think consumers care less and less about these sort of industry events. I know that the Aria is obviously about consumers it's, you know, music chosen by consumers. I know that it's not the Mumbrella Awards where it's the industry awarding people. But I think not just in Australia but across the world we've seen kind of less and less people inclined to watch what feels a little bit like an industry just patting itself on the back a lot of the time. I think consumers aren't really that interested in it. And plus we say this about industry awards they say that about consumer awards a lot of these awards there's so much kind of fat in the schedule there's so much just people taking long-winded time to you know congratulate the entire industry which I agree with you is a very important thing for the industry I think the logos are important for the industry I think the areas are important for the industry what I don't think it's necessarily important for is consumers and I think we're going to continue to see dropping numbers as more and more consumers would rather hop online the next morning, do a quick Google of who won the key awards than sit there watching yeah. the reporting for two and a half hours. So there's definitely certain things that people would have watched from that. You know, there'd be certain performances they really want to see. Uh, if you're a fan of Tones and I, you know, you'd be intrigued and wanting to know who won what and, you know, see certain performances from the artists or see any you know, particularly awful or hilarious moments from speeches. You know, there's often highlights packages of things that go wrong or things that are particularly funny or, you know, in the unusual case where some scripted banter actually works, people might watch it. But the length of the broadcast, I don't think people are going to sit down and watch the whole thing. I think it's going to be much more of a sort of snippet yeah. viewing from now on. And I think as well, you just said in there, Tones and I, who was one of the big winners from the night, Tones and I's fans aren't the kind of people that are sitting down on a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock or 7.30 to watch the Arias. Tones and I's fans are going to be on Twitter. social media. They're going to be yeah. on Twitter. They're going to be on YouTube. The whole event was done in partnership with YouTube Music. They had, you know, they took over, I think, last year was Apple Music. So it's all going to be on YouTube. YouTube had been putting up all these teaser clips leading up to it anyway. I think 
the broadcast is obviously still going to get attention. I just don't think it really works for a linear broadcast style. Next up, we chat to Trimantium Growth Ops founder, Philip Kingston. Joining us now is Philip Kingston, the man behind Growth Ops, or Tremantium Growth Ops as they were originally known. I'm Tim Burrows from Umbrella, and our editor Vivian Kelly is with us also. Hi, Philip. Hello, good to be here. Uh, Philip, I'll kick things off. Before we get on to Growth Ops, let's talk a bit about you and your background. I think it was three years ago the Australian Financial Review profiled you and said, Melbourne 30-year-old Philip Kingston is a master networker and described you as a Gen Y entrepreneur and venture capitalist. Is that how you describe yourself? Is it a fair summary? Probably. I think um, I would more see myself as a software person, actually. So my background is I'm a full-stack software engineer. And I first interacted with the advertising industry where I was providing actual software services for many of the below-the-line campaigns. Um, so I am spent a lot of time in the below-the-line world. Born in Melbourne. Um, I went to school here. Um, I basically have spent all my adult life in Australia, um, but I've spent a lot of time traveling and built businesses in other countries, which I think has been a good learning for me. Um, the, the sort of, I suppose, broader summary of my skill set is, is I have done a lot of venture capital investing, um, but I don't practice venture capital full time. Most of what I do is help businesses solve growth problems or help industries in uh, periods of structural change understand what opportunity sits there. Um, growth Ops was founded around a very simple idea that the industry is in a period of like, you know, potentially once in a lifetime structural change. Yeah, well, let's um, get into it. That's a good, a good good point probably to talk about Growth Ops. So what, what, what was your sort of vision for – so it started – uh, sort of initially it started life being called sort of Tremantium Growth Ops, now shortened down to Growth Ops. Um, what was your vision for that group or TGO as it is on the ASX? Yeah, so um, the vision for the group was to um, help businesses grow and to sort of de-silo conversations from, you know, we're making an app, we're making an ad, uh, we're doing a good brand, you know, these kinds of outputs, which are important, don't get me wrong. But Clients buy them for different reasons. Um, they buy them because they want revenue, uh, fundamentally. And they a a a achieve revenue growth through having something that people want to buy. And so um, what we've found um, in studying the change of how, you know, the clients have evolved over the last maybe 20 years with the introduction of the internet, mobile, etc., is clients have evolved at an incredibly rapid pace. But a lot of the service providers haven't. So like ad agencies will talk all day long about creative and innovation, but how much creative and innovation are they absorbing into their business every day? And is that the same pace as the clients? And I think fundamentally, the industries that we work with through Growth Ops and with Growth Ops has, have all had this common thread, which is, the world is changing, and are they changing fast enough? So where does the word trimantium come from? Yeah, so I was trying to find a unique name to call a, a investment firm, and 
it's incredible. You, you look at any city, suburb, country, anything, and then the word capital or similar words, and everything is taken. You have very obscure suburbs in the English countryside or whatever, and, and they're still they're still taken. So we had to make up a word, and um, we, we really liked Trinity Capital, and Trinity was available in every way. And we're like, why? This is like quite a comment because from the Matrix, that Trinity character, and obviously there's Christian references, but we were very, um, you know, excited about we finally found this name. We tested it, and we were told it was too religious um, and might sort of put off some groups. So we, we dropped the Trinity, but we kept the try. And then I really liked, um, sort of, you know, people often name private equity firms over and, and venture capital firms over like strong metals and things. Uh, and in X-Men, there is a character called Wolverine who is sort of skeletons hardened with adamantium. Um, so we use the mantium from adamantium and the tri from Trinity to make trimantium. And we thought we struck gold. Then it turned out that trimantium was actually a word used in the Star Wars universe as a plate armor that the Wookiees used on their spacecraft. So any, anyway, we thought we thought we'd come up with something new, but in fact, it was just already existed. Nothing is new. Nothing is, is the new. lesson here. That's right. And Philip, when we've written about your group in the past, we have faced some difficulty because we've referred to you as a holding group and then sort of been told that you're not a holding group. So if you don't like that language, how would you describe what it is if not a holding company? I think the difference between a holding company is the intent and then the behavior around acquisitions. So a holding company would typically buy and then operate and hold. So individual agencies or whatever, Correct. but they would still carry on being run on separate P&Ls. Correct. Um, and they wouldn't seek to create a single culture or a single brand or a single, you know, um, P&L. And, you know, if you speak to financial markets participants, uh, so analysts and f- funds managers, etc., they have quite a lot of issues with the way the accounting works in holding groups um, because you have a lot of earnouts. They're often in subsidiaries. It's very hard to read what the likely size of those payments is and when they're going to happen and what the conditions are. It's very qualitative often. Um, so one of the, you know, in, in canvassing feedback from the investor community over many years, as well as the client community, is they want a single accountable party for growth. Um, but this is a really hard and difficult project, right? So um, they want to be able to say, my sales of this product, I want them to go from, you know, X to Y within three years. And at the moment, the way that they can access that is to sort of self-coordinate a disparate series of providers who are very good at what they do. But there's a lot of what, um, you know, a big FMCG client who actually came up with the idea of growth ops. When I was working with them as a supplier, they had 36 digital agencies across 55 retail brands. There are over 100 active agencies and suppliers in use to run the marketing effort. And they just sort of said they actually need a new group of suppliers to coordinate the suppliers. And that's where it sort of dawned on me the value to the client of having a single accountable party. Isn't that sort of an argument just to go back to the old model of full-service agencies? It is. But I think the agency piece of the value chain is only a narrow piece. And to have a successful product in today's environment is much more than any one discipline. You know, um, when you have, say, you're, bu- you're buying something in a mobile app, 
um, every screen in that app is a reason to buy more, buy less, or buy nothing, or leave and hate it, or tell a thousand people. So reliability of the app is in fact directly connected to sales, which is a software problem and a testing problem. The usability for different audiences, how it functions, is in fact a sales effort. The look and feel, etc. So you can't, it's very difficult to say that one individual skill set dominates when you have this integrated software-led product era. And so as a result, I believe clients are looking for you know, single supplier accountability, which is taking the full service agency model to your point, Tim, and actually saying, well, how do you extend that? So, you know, people went into the below the line and digital, which is great. They went into search and all the new um, sort of online distribution modes, which is great. But the reason why we added management consulting, change consulting, leadership, um, as well as the full software layer into growth ops was because in order to deliver growth, you need those things to be on site. And if management is not embracing the change, then it's worthless. If they're not allocating resources to it, if they're not allocating, they're not training adequately. Like it, it, the ad doesn't matter if there's not the product to back it up and the product doesn't matter if there's not the ad to back it up. So we sort of see the consumer doesn't make a decision in a siloed way. Generally, they don't say the app is really buggy, but the ad is really good. So I buy it anyway. Um, they'll often take a holistic view and say, does this solve my problem? And so what we've tried to do, and it is extremely early days. Okay. So this is like day one of a very long-term project is to say, what is the support infrastructure that sits around the entrepreneurs of the world? The entrepreneurs are building tomorrow's products and services, which will dominate market share. They have venture capitalists, they have advisors, they have um, incubators, accelerators, they have corporate partners and, and, and venture capitalists um, with, with corporate brand and balance sheet to support. There's mentoring and so forth. There is a whole ecosystem of support that sits around entrepreneurs. And and there's only two futures, right? Either the incumbents survive in any product category or new people dominate. Right? I mean, sometimes the category goes away, but generally speaking, it's going to be either innovators or it's the incumbents. So you have the innovators that have all this support architecture, but what do the incumbents have? So the sort of terminal value of all incumbents, even if their products are no longer that competitive, they usually have three structural advantages over the new people. They have lower cost of capital, they have a distribution list, you know, they already have customers, and they have a strong brand. So take a major telco or an airline or something like that. They actually have those assets in perpetuity, generally speaking, which the entrepreneur does not. But what the incumbents don't have is these growth partners who they can work with to rapidly prototype new products. So there's people like IDEO, ThoughtWorks that do do that. Um, and then can take that rapid prototyping into a decent trial phase and then build it properly for scale, then brand it, test it, iterate around how we position the product, um, take all that together and then ultimately launch. And then the whole post-launch sequence of customer support, DevOps, um, security, etc. So that life cycle of innovation is currently very inefficient for incumbents and very efficient for new entrants. And that's something which 
That's, I mean, that's the core purpose of growth ops is to be the growth partner for the incumbent to give them the best chances against the new entrant. So, Philip, you mentioned there that consumers don't think in a siloed way. You know, they don't think, oh, the app's really buggy, but the ad is really good. And one of the agencies that you bought was AJF Partnership, which was a very respected creative agency. What in particular drew you to AJF? So when we put Growth Ops together, we knew we needed strong capability in in the area that, that AJF is strong, which we actually think is effectiveness. So you don't see AJF submitting entries into a lot of creative awards. They're, they're not that focused on sort of the big idea. They're very focused on, does this work? Like, are we getting sales? Do people care? Like, is it driving the right consumer behavior? And I think AJF have done extraordinarily well uh, in effectiveness awards. And that's why we like them. Um, if you think about, so how did we end up with the eight original companies? We actually diligenced over 130 companies over three years across 16 key service areas that we felt were important in order to offer this growth um, service. Now, we didn't quite get there on the full 16 services and there are gaps both in geography and in capability, but we've nearly fixed that. So we, we identified these 16 service areas are required and sort of are necessary to have predictable future growth. And AJF uh, and all of the, the original eight businesses brought something to the table. And the criteria was they had to be profitable businesses. They had to be growing independently on their own. They had to be um, non-overlapping with other businesses that came together because we didn't want to have another way that we differ significantly from a holding company is that we don't um, have businesses which compete with each other. And we've sort of the first thing you learn in in sort of finance 101 is, is you know, um, if you're going to pay a, if you're going to buy a business, you're paying a control premium almost always. If you're going to pay a control premium, you need to be able to get that back somehow over time through synergies or, or some, some way. Um, cause you're sort of definitionally paying more than you want to. And so one of the sort of opening questions to a holding group is, um, what, what is the convening reason? So, so why have you come together if you're not going to extract synergies? They don't integrate brands into one. They don't, um, integrate offices and cultures and P&Ls. So there's a lot of replication going forward. And then they add a layer of overhead above what was there previously. What we've tried to do, and it's very early days, is to create a single brand, a single P&L, single culture, single office network, um, one business. Now, people might say, well, some of those companies had great brand equity. That's true. But imagine the brand equity when you bring it together and execute over a three to five year horizon. So do you, will there be at the moment, the moment, for instance, AJF refer to themselves as AJF growth ops. Will there be a day when even AJF is just growth ops? Do you think? It's, yeah, it's entirely possible. I think every decision is made on a case by case basis. Some in some categories, um, brand is much more important than others. And I think there are deeper questions, um, that would drive the decision to, to rebrand a business like AJF. I think it would be more about, um, the evolution pace of the sector. Um, the, the advertising industry is very sort of quirky in, in many ways. The sort of pitching culture and, and the um, the conflict culture and, and the sort of attitude towards conflicts is totally unique in every industry in the entire world. It, it is such a 
bizarre sort of this these secrets can't be trusted and and no agency basically can be trusted to manage confidentiality um which you know might be sort of a bit of a sweeping statement but it is it is a strange you know you can have the same law firm acting on both sides of a transaction the same investment bank and they are mathematically conflicted but you're right that there there is a perception from clients that they have to manage conflict with their agencies and they, 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 they struggle to have to be working with the same agency as a rival. Now, you say it's early days. I mean, it's, it's getting on for it's probably more than a year and eight months since you floated. Would you describe it as a success so far? Absolutely. So it depends on what metric you use. Let's use um, an investor metric for starters. So someone who invested a dollar right now, that's worth 12 cents as we speak today. If they sold it, yes, it would be probably worth the spot price. Um, you'll find that most of the IPO investors have not sold any shares, including myself. In fact, I've bought shares since it went public. Um, the the reality is that um, we're not we don't control the share price. So what we do is we focus on things we do control. Um, putting together eight businesses in twelve months and having, you know. Integrated offices, um, roles, uh, you know, technologies, payroll, finance, back office, brand of six, I think, have been rebranded fully in some part, um, as well as digesting a 350-person digital agency across Asia, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a basically a 14-month period is an incredible achievement. And anyone who's bought a business before knows how hard it is to integrate and not lose clients and but not lose people. You can't have thought to yourself at the start when you were sort of early on and you were, you, you know, I think the share price was certainly above $1.35, approaching $1.40. You couldn't have thought in a year's time it'll be 12 cents. You, you, you must have been more optimistic than that. I think when you go into being a public company, there's a number of sort of personal moments you take with yourself around, do I want to do this? Because... Everything that you do is scrutinized um, and disclosed and, and, and audited and, and so forth. And that's, that's a change. Um, you know, there's very long uh, answers to some of these questions, but I think the, you know, would I prefer the share price to be higher rather than lower? Of course. Is it in my top 10 priority areas? No, it's not. We always want to grow share price, but share price follows good management decision-making and I'd prefer to be interrogated as a business on what are the things that we control and are we doing a good job on those things? If we are not, then we should be absolutely held accountable. Companies can do some things to improve the share price, but the reality is we need buyers of the stock. To get buyers, they need to understand it. One of the top 10 areas that is a concern for me is can we explain growth ops simply? In, in a short sentence to people that are time poor and have a lot of things on. Okay. Can you? Here's no. your opportunity. <laughs> I think, I think the problem is you end up in highly abstract terms. Like growth ops is uh, a company that helps their clients grow. I mean, that is a truthful statement. It's fairly simple, but that doesn't, it's not tangible. And then the other temptation is to become very tangible. We sell ads, we sell websites, we sell apps, which is also true statements, but a lot of people do that. And so one of the ongoing challenges that we have and we'll have for some time in a business that's in six cities with, you know, a diverse service mix is, is to, until we are known 
for a single project, which in itself is beyond question in terms of the efficacy, the simplicity, the execution, etc., it's going to be a difficult challenge. And that's that's part of it. I mean, all businesses have this this problem. Um, you either sort of charm your way through it by selling on, on B2B relationships, which at the end of the day, outside of advertising, most of our selling is very expert-driven, where the client is buying someone who knows a lot about something that they need, and they don't care what the brand is. They don't care what the structure is, if you're public or private or you know listed, unlisted. That's not important to them. It's like, I just need this person to help me on this project. So you own about or 20% of the business or something like that. Do you think of yourself, I mean, as, as the biggest shareholder, do you think of yourself as the proprietor? Absolutely. We, you have to. Um, you know, the ASX has incredibly deep guidelines around what good governance looks like. And there's all these reports and principles and, you know, organizations that try to promote good governance. But really what it all boils down to is thinking like an owner, making decisions that maximize the outcomes for owners, um, you know, and there's other duties as well, but that's basically what it boils down to. Deep employee ownership is highly predictive of long-term shareholder value. Um, that's not to say that no employee ownership leads to low value in the future, but it's what we decided when we went public is that almost every staff member had shares at IPO, almost everyone, you know, 300 people. Um, a lot of our, when we brought the businesses together, which was a sort of controlled merger of, you know, broadly equals, um, they came together heavily in stock. And in fact, yeah, they were paid, was it in terms of people selling? It was 50% stock, 50% cash effectively. Yes. But then many of the partners, in fact, all of the partners invested personal money into the IPO. And was that in order to get it away? It definitely helped. It was a very, very difficult IPO, as as all of them are. I mean, there's been seven pulled in the last four weeks. And even very established companies, you know, can uh, can struggle. Um, so no IPOs are easy. I mean, anyone who's done one knows that. And we did have some stumbling blocks. Um, but we did raise $70 million, which was our intended target. And it did take about two months longer than, than we wanted. Um, but actually... Uh, there have been companies that are trying to go public all year uh, in 2019 and they still have paused it into the following year. So by and large, we're pretty happy with the, the outcome. And what were those stumbling blocks to listing? Well, $70 million is a lot of money. Um, one of the challenges with the in- investor community is um, many of these the big stocks on the ASX are quite tangible. So, you know, a bank or a milk company or a mining company, you sort of know roughly what they do. Um, and you have an in- intrinsic idea about the demand. You know, people need a home loan or people need coal or whatever, um, for now at least. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not clear what an agency does to the outside world. If you are a marketing director, um, and, you know, and, and many C-suite operators of businesses really understand the stuff that we sell. But actually, most investors have not run businesses and have not been a buyer of advertising or a buyer of tech. And as a result, their you know natural understanding of what we do is very limited. And so one of the challenges is how do you communicate, you know, like, like an AJF that has an incredible track record over 15 years. Most of that track record does not actually 
is not understood by the institutional investor community. So one of the stumbling blocks is really how do you get people to put money into something that they really don't understand? Um, and, and that's, that's why the positioning is so, so critical. Um, and that's why we, you know, we ultimately went for very long term investors who, who weren't the sort of, if you like, normal ASX IPO investors were just not interested at all. And the people that were interested were long-term family office type investors that are used to investing in a 10 to 20 year investment horizon. And you sold KDIS, didn't you? Uh, what did it do? I'm not actually familiar with KDIS. Yeah. So big clients for KDIS was Nestle and, um, and Bio. Um, so we, we did below the line, uh, for, so, um, you know, building websites so that, you know, at the time, milo.com.au, nestcafe.com.au, all those brand sites were actually on a platform that we built for the brand managers so that rather than having each agency rebuild a brand site over and over again, we built them a master brand site, which was secure and tested and could run all the different types of campaigns and activations or, uh, you know, competitions, things like that. So we built all those modules once properly and then any of the brand managers across the entire business um, could actually leverage those assets, um, which created a lot of efficiency for um, the building of those brand websites and competition activation websites. And how much did you get for KDIS? Um, all, so, you know, and this was a, a question that we envisaged. So we, we did everything with the same rule. So um, basically businesses that contributed less than a million dollars of net profit after tax had one multiple and businesses that contributed more than a million dollars of net profit after tax got another multiple. And what we did is we used the same audit firm, which is Deloitte. Deloitte went through all of the businesses. As I said, we mentioned, we ended up with eight, but we actually did quite extensive DD on about 40 due diligence. I mean, and then we also, we actually started with, with well over 130 in the, in the pipe that we did interviews and we had to make sure that people got on well, they had non-overlapping skill sets um, and that their numbers were good and, and all the other items we mentioned earlier. So diligence in the financials was all done by Deloitte. They created what was called a maintainable net profit after tax number. So maintainable being um, taking into account the repeat and recurring business, what we felt was a fair estimate. So you take their statutory profit after tax. So EBITDA is quite easily... To, to distort so we don't like that too much when you're buying businesses you, it's better to use gen, genuine cash flow generation so we use that a multiple of that and the multiple paid for KDOs was the same multiple paid for all the businesses under a million which which was under a million of NPAT that was and, a very long answer without an actual figure I see what you did there well, it's, no it's in the no, it's, it's, it's in the prospectus and that effectively I think was the only really the only cash you've taken out of the float was your sale of that business um, and, and the re repayment of a loan. But that was basically everything else you've, you, you've had so far as stated shares. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I have a $15,000 a year director's fee, which I had to take because of minimum uh, wage legislation, um, which I, I wanted to take zero, but I wasn't for some reason allowed to do that. Um, I have not actually been paid that salary yet. That's okay. Um, the, I've invested much more than I've obviously sold. I haven't sold any shares. I did take the cash component out because we wanted 
to treat every business the same. So everyone that um, was was fifty percent cash, fifty percent shares. So I did. And Sylvia's question: can, can, can you remember off the top of your head what that cash amount was for the KDIS yes. component? It was around three hundred thousand, perhaps. Not as much as I was expecting. That seems like quite a modest number. Yeah, well, considering I've invested many multiples of that, yes. And speaking of investing, um, another company that you purchased was Asia Pacific Digital or APD as it's often known. What did you see in that business? So we look at, you know, I'm a very top-down sort of um, investor and, and entrepreneur, so I always look at trends. Um, obviously, everyone you know, listening to this knows the population and macro growth in, in Asia is incredible. Um, population drives spending and economy and growth and everything like that. So we had to have strong presence in Asia, and that's a key part of our thesis because when we work with a client about growth, it's, okay, well, are we going to build a new product and service or are we going to take an existing product or service into a new market? And that could be a new geographic market. And being able to work with a single brand or client across multiple geographies is hugely differentiated. Um, and a lot of our competitors are quite regionally siloed. So to be able to work with a brand in New Zealand and then into Hong Kong and to Singapore and Malaysia and so forth, um, we see as a strong point of difference. The reason why we bought Asia Pacific Digital was because of all of the independent at scale operations they were the only one that we could find that had strong credentials. It was definitely not um, perfectly run. No businesses are. And there's, you know, um, I think a lot of things that, that we've done now with that business, which are positive, but it, it also was not trading very well. Uh, some of that was fair and some of it was unfair. And this, and they had quite a big debt, which you had to take on as well. They did, um, which we refinanced with much cheaper debt. Um, but they had, what they did have is something which would cost us a lot more to replicate than to buy. So we, this was a simple commercial decision of how long would it take for me to hire, you know, a very successful team in Singapore and, and Malaysia and Australia, there were and Australia, Australia and New Zealand that could actually service us, um, and our clients across the region. How long would that take and how much would that cost? And we worked out that to hire 300 people in these offices and to actually have strong revenues of, at the time, you know, tens of millions would actually take us two years at least and cost at least $10 million. So then the question is, what is the benefit, you know, of having it now versus waiting and noting that we could spend that 10 million and then have nothing to show for it? So I didn't want our executive team flying around hiring all this talent in Asia and distracted from running the business. So we made the call that it was better to, to go for a roughly 9.5% dilution because it was an all-stock deal and then taking on their debt, which we knew ahead of time we could refinance cheaper. That was going to be our shortest path. And as a shareholder, the strategic value of having the Asia-Pacific digital business far exceeds the the cost of diluting by 10%. Now, quite quickly, you, you wrote down the value of that acquisition by, was it 20, yeah, 22 million was, 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 was what you, you disclosed. Um, was that because 
you felt you didn't have the full picture when you made the acquisition or did something, what, what, what changed? What led to the, the write down? Yeah, I think accounting charges are like impairment, um, are complex and very regulated. The board doesn't have a, you know, a huge amount of say in how intangible assets are dealt with. Um, you know, it's important to realize they are non-cash charges. There's no actual money changing hands. Um, Personally, I like to have the lowest possible value attached to my intangibles as possible in the early phases of a business because you almost always impair it eventually. So you're better to take the hit in one year than to have it sort of eating away at your accounting profit over a long period of time. We know there's in the first few years there's going to be a lot of once-offs. And those, <clears throat> those once-off charges are going to hit you. And so... It's absolutely important to try to um, take all those once-off charges at the same time and then clean the books up for the future. A lot of holding companies have got themselves into trouble by placing too much value on their intangible assets. Um, they often borrow money against intangibles. This has happened in a lot of the big uh, blow-ups of, of roll-up attempts. So we studied every roll-up attempt. These are the photons or an arrow as they are now, blue freeways, those sort of organizations. And even some that are still around today, I think, have far too much leverage and they believe a little bit too much in their own balance sheet. Um, and the reality is, you know, the way I like to guide um, our, our board to the extent that I have a say is, well, what could we sell this for quickly? Um, if that's what we can sell it for, then let's carry it that. Now, there's a whole accounting standard that cuts across that, but that's what my intent is because I don't want to believe that my net asset position is any stronger than it really is. So we always err on the side of um, carrying intangibles at the lower end of the range if we can. So speaking of borrowed money and leverage, uh, the current debt, which is $14 million to Westpac as a result of the APD takeover, is due in a year. How confident are you that that obligation can be met? We've been uh, a huge, uh, hugely grateful to Westpac support over over a long time. Um, the the facility is that size. I'm not sure of how much is drawn today. It does move around. Um, it's not uncommon to have a facility which you know goes up and down based on the cash needs of the business. Um, it's not a significant facility. You would, you would typically, um, you know, most Australian investors would expect a one to two times EBITDA, uh, you know, thereabouts for, for a business like this. Um, and so we, we try to keep it in that range in terms of how much we actually use of that facility. Um, you know, as a personal view, I, I do like to be unlevered, um, when you're in a growth phase and, and you're doing a lot of restructuring. So I'd prefer to have less debt. Um, which is something we're looking at. And I would also say that, um, you know, there's a saying from the oil industry back in the day of don't drill with debt. So when you're working on exactly what the product is and refining the service offering, you're best to be unlevered. And so the route, one route, obvious route to less debt is to issue more stock. Now I know that's dangerously like a forward looking statement, which you're not able to make um, because of, obligations to the ASX, but when you're saying less debt, is 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 that the obvious route? It is an option. Um, 
I think there's 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 many ways to do it. I think tra- trading through it, where you know paying down over a period of time from profits is a is a good option. I don't think a lot of our investors are expecting us to be a dividend stock anytime soon. So yeah, you specifically said that's not the plan. Yeah, and it's it, it is it is not currently the plan. Um, as a result, you know there there will be um, you know positive cash flow over time. So I think the the sort of view was either pay it down through cash flow or, or to refinance it through through either equity or different types of debt that's perhaps more flexible. So back in September, just a couple of weeks before the annual report came out, quote from the auditors, for the year ended 30th of June 2019, the group recorded a net loss of 65 million. And obviously, you know, we know that's because of right downs, not 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 an EBITDA loss, for instance, and used net cash in operating, investing and financing activities of 13.7 million. The conditions indicate that a material uncertainty exists that may cast significant doubt on the group's ability to continue as a going concern, which I know sounds scary, but I also know that it's something that you sometimes see from auditors and then all is well. Um, clearly the director's know they have a duty to say something if they don't believe it's a going concern and clearly they believe it is because you're still going um what's what's your thoughts about that message from the auditors because it's it still sounds scary when you say it out loud it is most you have to remember that these statements are written by the board and then the auditors opine on them but the author of those statements is the board of the company it is well. This, I think, was in the statement from Deloitte at the end, from the, specifically. Okay. From right. Deloitte. So, in that case, um, I wouldn't disagree with that statement, and um, I also think that the the most prudent way to represent your stock is in the most conservative light. You take the flip side statement, where there is debt and everything is fine. Um, you know that that's misleading or could be misleading. So, in the current era of directors' disclosure. And the liability that sits around directors. Um, I think if you picked up uh, any services business in the current climate and looked at some of their audit statements, you would see similar depictions. And what that's really saying is if revenue drops below a certain level, there could be problems. Or if there's no ability to refinance debt, there could be problems. That's true of any business. Any ASX company, if it had to pay all of its debts today, would have a problem. You don't always see that sort of statement from the auditors, though. Absolutely. Right? So they're looking at a business that has gone from zero to 70 million of revenue in a very short period of time with incredible increases in business complexity in terms of six countries and so forth, and then taking on debt. I think it's a reasonable characterization. It's much better to say there's material uncertainty than to not. And soon after that statement was issued, there was a huge shuffle of your board. And so obviously from the outside looking in, it's hard not to to link, you know, the warning and then the changes at the board level. Would you say they were linked? I think the the linkage there there are and you know, this is not always obvious to people that are not on public boards, but there are times of the year when you can't do things like this. So um, you know, you've got an AGM, you've got your results come out um, and then you've, you know, there's a sort of process and very structured communication. So it's unwise to change your board before, for example, your annual report has been signed off. 
So you do typically see director changes and management changes once the financials have been signed off because a new board typically won't want to sign off on financials when it didn't sit on the board during that year. And which way around was it? Was it that the most of the board resigned or was it that you tapped them on the shoulder and suggested it was time for a new board? I mean, people will speculate about that. The reality is our old board had a very tough job for over two years. They were working. They pulled off a very difficult IPO. They were involved in the DD. And we were all attached to these businesses early, right? So I founded one of them. I was an advisor to another. Paul Mansfield was an advisor to two of them. These weren't just a random collection of businesses. They already traded together, you know, um, and, and I'd been a client of many of the businesses for many years. So I knew these businesses and diligenced them as a client. In fact, one of the ways I diligenced them was actually to give them work and see were they doing a good job for their clients. So I actually knew the client experience before we went to the IPO. That's really important. Because I suppose to, to Viv's point, it, from the outside world, it feels a bit like there's this potential trouble ahead that the auditor's pointed to. You know, you, you could see why as a director, you might think, do I want my reputation attached to what might happen? Maybe it's time to move on. Yeah, that's a view, but it's just not a truthful view. And what actually happened is they were tired. We brought in a much larger board with incredible financial acumen. Our chairman launched and ran the Bank of Melbourne. Uh, he's on incredible boards, extremely credentialed, very financial. And he did extensive diligence on the way in, as did all directors. Um, so the sort of imputation that the old ones were sort of forced out or resigned in some mass exit because of financial issues, I mean, uh, I think that's that's probably unkind and untrue. I think what actually happened is they were tired. Um, they'd done a lot. Paul had integrated 10 companies, when you include Xperia, in a 14-month period. That's really hard. And so I'm very grateful to their contribution. Um, and, you know, but, but what we've done now is we've brought a board that's probably better suited to the phase of the company we're now entering, which is we're on the tail end of the integration phase, tail end of the rebranding phase, and now we're going into an aggressive growth phase. So you'll see us hiring different types of people. Um, we'll be uh, in terms of salespeople, revenue generating people. We'll be going to market as, as a combined business and much less, I suppose, resting on the individual laurels of the past and more taking what well, let's tackle the, what we see the future client mix is going to be. And just on the new board. So w w was it, did you take the lead in finding the board members? The new board members. Yeah, I did. Um, and the, the, the one that I'm curious about, and I'm, I'm so sorry, I've forgotten the name. I want to say Jess Hart. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, th that, that to me was the most interesting one of the one that stood out. So not, not previously as far as I could see an ASX director, but better known as a sort of, you know, cover model on swimsuit illustrated is if you look her up in sure. on Wikipedia, that's the first thing you see. What, but has also been an influencer and had brands. I'm not saying it's a completely ridiculous thing, but what was it you saw in her that that made her a right right fit for the board? So I'd known Jess for a long time, um, as had other directors, um, and we'd seen her transition from a modelling career, principally into um, a, a an entrepreneur. Uh, she's got a very successful uh, online brand and business and e-commerce platform 
Um, so um, that's one of the reasons why she's there, but also rounding out the the skill sets. I mean, she advises very serious brands on 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 brand workshops and, and so forth. So every director is there for a very specific reason in terms of capability or expertise or, or relationships. Um, and all of those directors can open up the doors into chief marketing officers or decision makers in many different categories of potential clients. And that's why they're there. Um, just to tidy up a couple of other things um, from sort of disclosures in the last report, uh, one of the kind of related party disclosure disclosures was uh, a loan to Sargon, which is a business you were involved in, which is in the super space of uh, six million dollars. What's what's the background to that? So, um, Growth Ops, with many of its larger clients, has payment terms. Um, the only reason why those particular payment terms were disclosed is because it's related, and we've always taken a view it's much better to overdisclose than underdisclose. So, if we had, um, you know. If we were related to some of our other large clients, it'd be similar disclosures, and that's all it is. Do you have uh, any regrets since you've listed? Many. Top three. Um, I think the, you know, it, it's a people business at the end of the day, and you can have as much analysis as you like, and you know, but but attracting and retaining talent is hard, really difficult through change. Um. People, you know, always want, crave certainty and they want to know, okay, so you made these statements on this Umbrella podcast, what does that mean for me? Am I okay? And so one of the challenges that we have not done as well as we could is communicating in sort of real time and tangible ways with all the staff. And it's hard because of the geographies, the cultural, some of the language barriers. It's hard and no, you know, it's very difficult to do well, but that's definitely an area that we're very focused on. Um, we probably took too long to come into our current phase, which is a growth phase. We, we, we spent longer on probably low, lower return integration. You know, you know, like all the finance systems don't have to be perfectly integrated. You can actually just keep running and sort of sweep some of that over time. We probably did a more genuine level of business integration than most people do. And that's expensive and it takes a lot of time. I think we should have probably gone faster into a go to market as, as growth ops, um, and, and not have everything perfect in, in the back office. Um, and I think having a bigger and more active board, we probably took too long. We had a very good, you know, governance board, but we didn't have a growth board, people that interact with our clients every day or who just mix in circles where there's a lot of deals happening, um, whether it's government, whether it's, uh, you know, large enterprises, nonprofits, et cetera, actually having those day-to-day interactions is a feature of the new board, which we, we probably should have brought in earlier. Final question for me is just something I'm curious about, really. Um, I've been skeptical. Mumbrello has been skeptical about the business model, you know, where you're going. Um, it was your suggestion we talked today. What, 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 what made you want to do it? Well, I think you're absolutely right to be skeptical and I wouldn't have it any other way. I think it's absolutely normal for this to be happening. What's not normal is no one talking about it. We're not interesting. We're not threatening. We're not doing anything new if no one's talking about it. A lot of the current conversation in 
in Mumbrella and preparing for today, I have, you know, listened to other podcasts and gotten a bit more in, sort of involved in, in the, the sort of ecosystem. And a lot of the conversations are very much about, it's sort of quite narrow, um, and they're very much about this person moved to this job and what does this mean and this company bought that company and what does that mean? I think what the problem we're trying to solve is not about that. Like that's important, but what we're trying to solve is how are clients wanting to buy things in five to 10 years from now? And what is the, the company that's going to be able to actually sell in that and, and, and to be able to respond to those future changes? What's changed and is affecting everyone is the rise of the tech giant. Tech giants are sprawling into geographies and categories that no one expected. And that's going to keep happening. It's not going to slow down. And individual cases like, you know, people were maybe underwhelmed by how Amazon actually affected e-commerce in Australia at the first instance. But don't underestimate that the second iteration and third iteration and because these people learn really quickly. So the the business that we are building is 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 not ready yet. We're iterating, we're learning. What we're building is a business when tech giants come into your sector that you can respond and have the best chances of surviving disruption from companies that have effectively unlimited money and resources who are bigger than you in every other market and then are coming into your patch. And no matter what industry you're in, this is real. So we're building a business that can work with clients to work on that problem um, and then going global in that new context, not on the sort of, you know, present day sort of problems because we will lose. Like that's not what we're geared to do and that's fine. And speaking of survival, finally, you're 100% confident you will survive. Yes, we will survive. Philip, thank you for your time. Thank you. Just quickly before we go, a final reminder that the Mumbrella Next conference is being held on the 10th of December in Sydney. One of the sessions I think that's going to be really, really interesting is the one titled Quiz the Industry Leader. So that one has the CEO of Mindshare, Katie Riggs-Smith, the Chief Marketing Officer of Coles, Lisa Ronson, the CEO of Nova, Kathy O'Connor, and the founding partner of Williams International, Nick Williams, where audience members will be basically able to ask them anything anonymously. Uh, We'll be collecting their questions in a box located in the networking area, and then later on in the day, these leaders will be answering all of your questions about the challenges they've faced, how to make your mark, what they've been through, how they've gotten to where they've gotten to, and even if you're someone who's nervous to put your hand up and ask these big wigs a really difficult question, you, you don't have to. You can just pop it into a box and, and hear from these fantastic leaders. And speaking on the day are also CHE Proximities, Chris Howitson and a number of other really inspiring, really successful people with some great insights to sort of help you if you're in the earlier stages of your career in media marketing and or advertising. So head to mumbrella.com.au slash next awards to find out more information because the conference also precedes the awards for those in the industry with 10 years or fewer experience. So that's mumbrella.com.au slash next awards. That is all for this week though, team. Thank you for joining me. Thanks. Thanks.